You are now entering Frida's world. Join us as we address various issues facing women of color in the workplace. We'll help you navigate your professional and personal life the Frida way. Whose world is this? It's Frida's world. What's it like? What's it like? Classy and ratchet at the same time. You clash it. Like you love church music, but you f*** with future. That's clash it. It's Frida's world. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Frida's World. I hope you all had an amazing week. I know for many of you, you are still on a high from the announcement that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are now the leaders of the free world. Um, I know for me personally, I've been candid about this on my other platforms. Joe Biden was not my first choice. But when you think about the larger picture, when you think about democracy and you think about the mockery and the clownery and buffoonery that has taken place in this country over the last several years, the atrocities, the horrific instances of just injustice and just, I don't know, just, <laughs> I mean, we can't even put into words what the American people and the world have had to endure over the last several years under the Trump administration. It is a breath of fresh air. And I think a lot of people can sleep a little better at night, even though we aren't 100 percent sure what the real agendas of the Biden-Harris uh, presidency will bring. I think for most of us, we can at least be rest assured that it cannot be anywhere near what was happening under the Trump administration. So as a woman of color, I think that this is a proud moment. Um, not just because of Kamala Harris, but when we think about women like Stacey Abrams and the work that she put in to flip Georgia. I mean, Georgia has not been blue for 28 years. And obviously there are other individuals who were involved in, in all of this. The black voters came out in droves, but Stacey Abrams really put in the work to ensure that Georgia was blue and that in a sense, I mean, this was, I think, the state that really brought Joe Biden over. Um, so I think about all of the strong black women that really, you know, put stuck their neck out and, you know, really did their thing to turn out votes, to turn out black votes um, for this, you know, presidency, for this election. Um, and, you know, I'm in awe at the work that has been done. And it's just a testament that whenever black women are involved in anything, <laughs> when they put their minds to it, things will get done and they will be done, you know, with perfection. They will be done, you know, with a level of excellence that, you know, is unprecedented. Right. So. It is a proud moment, regardless of what your actual party politics are. I think we can all sit back and acknowledge, you know, the effort of black women. And I and I stress that because I think it was earlier this week I had seen a post um, by Eva Longoria and she talked about how, you know, black women, yeah, we did our thing, but it is the Latina women. They are the true heroines of this election. And it just goes to show it's like, you know, as black women, we're out here, we're doing what we need to do, but we are always discounted. It's like we are always undermined. And that post, maybe that wasn't her intention, but that's exactly 
what myself and many of my friends got from this interview that she did where she, you know, black women, yeah, but then it's the Latina women that were the true heroines for this election. And the interesting part is that I don't see any data. I have not yet seen any data that actually suggests that. (laughs) And we don't want to make it a them against us situation, but you know, as a black woman, as black people, we are always being shunned, you know, pushed to the side. Our efforts are never, you know, truly given the weight that they deserve. You know, look at what happened here, you know, with, again, Stacey Abrams and the other black women that have really done their part in ensuring. I mean, I mean, I can go on and on about this, but you know, this is a platform for professional women of color, but as a black woman, I, you know, want to take every opportunity to salute black women and to uplift black women because we're not often uplifted properly, right? People might give us a praise for five seconds and then somehow, some way, there's some sort of undermining that that takes place. And I think it's important that Black women continue to to promote and support and uplift and to give the credit where the credit is due without finding a, oh, an underhanded way of taking it away. Right. Um, I had to get that off my chest. <laughs> it wasn't even part of part of what I was supposed to say today, but it just it just popped in my head. And, you know, I was just like, oh, I got to talk about it. But either way, that is my my preliminary spiel. We have an amazing guest today by the name of Tatiana Dorsey, who is a professional in the diversity and inclusion world. And she's going to talk about the diversity and inclusion space, especially in, you know, this climate, right? What is diversity and inclusion? How, how does it play out in a climate you know, that's, you know, you can cut the the racial tensions, right, with a knife. She's also going to talk about um, a book she recently co-authored, the HBCU um, Experience, North Carolina A&T Second Edition. And she's going to talk about, you know, just the importance of, of, of this book, what this book means to her and what it should mean, right, to the, the, hundreds of thousands of black uh, children, black high schoolers who are getting ready to go to college. Um, what attending an HBCU, you know, meant to her and what, what it what it can mean, what it can be to our future generation of scholars who are looking to, you know, better themselves and they're looking for institutions um, that can not just give them the academic um, you know, uh, push, but, you know, an overall, I think, holistic um, experience, really. And I've talked to many people that were authors in this book. And those of you who've tuned into, you know, Frida's World have, you know, you've, you've been privy, you've heard some of these interviews and discussions with these individuals. And so, you know, this conversation with Tatiana Dorsey, I think, is going to, again, solidify a lot of the themes, right, that we've discussed when it comes to black excellence and really being pro-black and really supporting our own and 
placing ourselves in positions and in spaces that can um, celebrate us as black people and uplift us and take us to new levels. So definitely keep it locked for uh, this interview. I think you guys will definitely enjoy it. And um, it's now time for the meat of the show. I'm here with my very special guest, Tatiana Dorsey. Tatiana, please say hello. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And thank you for making the time to be on the Frida's World platform. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. So, Tatiana, uh, I just want you to just maybe talk a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Absolutely. So, um, I am Tatiana. I am a... Uh, wife, mom, entrepreneur, um, busy in so many different capacities. I wear many hats. Um, but I am from originally uh, uh, Maryland, D.C. area, but I moved around so much. I really don't have a place that I call home, but I okay. graduated high school from Rocky Mount, North Carolina. So I called that place home every now and then, if you will, <laughs> um, just to kind of say, yeah, that's where I graduated from. But I, I call a lot of places home. Home is actually kind of where um, my family like lands and they're not in North Carolina anymore. So I guess home is in South Carolina where they are now. So okay. we kind of go back and forth. But I'm, I currently reside in um, Atlanta, Georgia, the greater suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. And I um, am working in the diversity and inclusion space. I own a 501c3 nonprofit and um, that is everything that kind of makes up me, I guess, <laughs> in, uh, you know, this very crazy world that we're living in. So depends on what day of the week you talk to me, it, it's, I'm doing something different each day. <laughs> As you should. I think it's always great to have our hands in just different pots and just trying different things out. You know, I think that's what, ge- that's what makes us who we are and gives us life. Yes, Absolutely. So, uh, Tatiana, I, you know, you mentioned that you're in the diversity and inclusion world. And I know that over the last several years, that industry has been booming. We're seeing a lot more companies uh, put focus on hiring uh, chief diversity officers and including this conversation of diversity and inclusion within, you know, the workspaces. Yes. 
And so I am a little curious as to, uh, I guess, how you have found that to be within, you know, uh, the time that I guess you, you entered the, the field. How have you seen that really play out? Because I think the, the phrase or, or just, you know, the terms diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion vary. And a lot of people are still trying to understand what that truly means, uh, particularly with respect to, I guess, Black people. Absolutely. So I've been working in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space now for about four and a half years. Um, And I've seen it change just based on the different industries that I've worked in and the the size companies that I've worked for, just kind of uh, depending upon the maturity level of their uh, diversity and inclusion function, if you will, for the different organizations. And um, I think that sometimes companies have a habit of adding diversity and inclusion efforts for um, a check the box kind of activity or or saying that, you know, we're diverse and we're inclusive and, you know, here's how. Um, I think that sometimes people think that they're doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do when you're impacting your organization from a diversity and inclusion perspective. Mm -hmm. But I think that people in these organizations sometimes often miss the commercial importance behind diversity and inclusion efforts within their own own organization. The people in these workspaces should be able to come in and be their authentic selves, and they should also match what their consumer base is and and the consumer bases that they have yet to get to, if you will. Um, I think that the timing and the incidents that we have had in the past six months have had a huge impact on diversity and inclusion. It's being talked about (laughs) at the highest levels. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had to ask myself recently, just to be very honest, like, you know, why now? Like we have been working in this space for so long and we've been, you know, um, you know, when I say we, I mean diversity and inclusion practitioners who just do this work. Right. And, and I like to say fight the good fight because it really is a fight um, in our spaces because it's a fight outside of our corporations and our organizations. So to embed that into a workplace where it has its own kind of politics and its own kind of um, things that you have to work through can be very difficult at times. Um, I think COVID has a lot to do with why it's so in the forefront right now. I think COVID has forced everything to stop and everything to slow down. Um, And unfortunately the death of George Floyd really set a catalyst across the globe, not just the United States, but across the globe. It was amazing. It was impeccable to see the protests in Germany, in London, um, you know, where this is not, you know, a topic for them all the time, right? It's not, it's not the same type of issues um, race related across the globe as it is Mm -hmm. in the U.S. And I had to ask myself, well, you know, unfortunately, you know, why is this time so prevalent? And it's unfortunate that it comes from a death but this isn't the first death, right? Um, George Floyd's name, unfortunately, was added to a long list of names. And I, I had a, a hard time, to be very honest with you, to, you know, just ask myself, why, why is it of importance now? Like, it is, is it of importance because now the spotlight is on these companies mm-hmm. and, you know, we're, we're looking to see, you know, how you're going to respond? Because as of right now, the world has stopped and we don't have our regular routines to kind of keep us going because when we had similar incidents um, and other hashtags, if you will, I think the world was just continuing. Yeah. You know, you would, he would hear about this awful incident. 
on television and if it didn't impact your community, then it wasn't something that you thought about after you turned off the news. So, um, you know, the time is now. It's important that diversity and inclusion practitioners such as myself take full advantage of the ears that we have to fully listen and to really create workplaces that all employees can thrive. And that's the benefit of the work that I do. It's, it's really about the inclusion aspect more so than it is about the diversity. And I think that sometimes people get that confused because yeah. you can have two people of a homogenous race or gender and still be diverse, right? Um, just based on cognitive thinking style or personality type or upbringing. Um, so I don't necessarily like to always talk about the diversity aspect because that's a given. Um, but I think the inclusion piece and the equity piece is the biggest portion of importance. I definitely agree with you. I think that point of, you know, the focus being more so on inclusion and diversity is really poignant because I think a lot of people do, you know, they just really focus on the diversity part and not really understand, like you said, there could be two individuals, you know, with the same background, the same gender, same race, but but still be different. Yes. Um, so I think that that's really important for people to understand. Yes, now, absolutely. Now, I know that as of recent, and I'm pretty sure you're fully aware of this being in the space, that um, there's been a lot of back and forth uh, over President Trump's um, recent ban. I don't know how far that's going to go, but his ban on uh, diversity and inclusion efforts and cultural sensitivity trainings within federal agencies. And, you know, when, and his, his reasoning behind that is that um, it's anti-American, it's divisive. Now, Ace, what, what are your thoughts on that? And what are people within the diversity and inclusion space uh, saying with respect to this? Um, I think that it's no, you, you don't get more divisive than telling people that they can't learn how to be inclusive of others who are diverse, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and we already established that diversity does not always have to boil down to gender or race. But, um, you know, to say, I'm, we're going to stop this training because it's, you know, anti-American or, or whatever his, his reference was, I think is extremely divisive. Um, I think that, you know, it's not surprising, unfortunately, based on, you know, how the president has handled everything that he has done since he's been in office. And I, my only true response to that would be to get out and vote, to really impact change and make your voice heard. I would hope that it does not impact spaces where it completely wipes away, you know, training and the things that are necessary in the workspace. I will say education is free and mm -hmm. finding ways to still have dialogue and educate yourselves or to research and, and, and find things that are new to you. Cause I think sometimes too, people like we we've said, diversity is always like, Oh, it's race or it's gender. Um, or then you can talk about things, you know, it's religion or these, it's just different things that kind of make this really colorful aspect of, of everyone in the globe and all the differences that, you know, make us unique and make us who we are. But when you have conversations or when you, when you learn of something that's different, for example, if I learn of a new religion that I'm just completely unfamiliar with, instead of me saying, oh, I don't do that, or oh, I don't mm -hmm. believe in that, you know, my, my response to that would be, well, go educate yourself. Go see what's, what's different. Go see what's similar. 
And then at the end of the day, it all boils down to respect. So I don't agree, of course, with what he's doing. And I would hope that the people who are able to make these decisions would see the value in continuing these um, trainings and continuing the conversations. But the diversity inclusion practitioner in me would also say this work that we do is so beyond training. So it really can't be stopped. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I'm happy that you, you said that because I, you know, some people were actually very concerned and are still very concerned with respect to this ban because, you know, whenever uh, this individual, uh, you know, bans things and says things, you know, although we know that he's so full of it, a lot of times people mm-hmm. are, you no know, people still have to stop and listen because it's, it's a mandate, right? And we yeah. have to figure out like what is really going to happen with this. But I thought that it was, quite interesting to see. And I, and I'm glad that I actually got the chance to speak with you because I I wanted to hear from a diversity and inclusion specialist, what their thoughts were with respect to this ban. And if there, if this was something to be concerned about. I, I think that anything that the president of the United States does, whether it's Trump or anyone else, whatever is mandated should always be taken seriously because, Mm -hmm. you know, it impacts so many people. Um, yeah, I definitely think that I, I just have to be very honest, just me personally, I, if I were to get caught up on everything that he says, I would be concerned about everything because I just (laughs) don't align to his values and his beliefs. Um, in the world of diversity and inclusion, we're always fighting the good fight and, you know, diversity awareness trainings, they weren't always a expectation out of the companies that were, that are now being banned. Right. And we were Mm -hmm. still trying to figure out ways to impact a space where people can be them, their best selves and bring their full selves to work or, and it doesn't even have to be, you know, at, at their jobs, it can be in their communities or whatever that, that specific area is. It really starts within oneself Um, so like my advice would just be, you know, take, take it seriously, but, you know, make smart decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think, I think that's really the the right way to think about it. Um, especially in these times. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And vote. I can't express, I cannot express that enough. Like there's so many things that we're super concerned with that I'm very, you know, um, knowledgeable or I'm going to acknowledge the fact that I'm on a platform where Mm -hmm. people will hear this and I just can't express enough the importance to get out and vote. Definitely. Definitely. Because I think that during this, this time, people are actually on the fence. You know, a lot of the most educated people are on the fence about whether to vote or not because of the candidates of choice. And so I think, Mm -hmm. you know, that message is still very necessary, you know, in every room, you know, yeah. <laughs> some people think that, well, you know, we're talking to a lot of professional people here. There's no reason to actually say that, but you know, you'd be surprised. Um, yeah. So I definitely agree, agree with that. Definitely get out and vote, exercise your right to vote and be part of the process, be part of the change. Absolutely. And that is, that is it, right? You literally just said that it mm-hmm. is that is what has to happen from a diversity and inclusion perspective, from just being a good person. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I work with really great people and you know, that golden rule where it's like do unto others or treat others the way, you know, you want to be treated. But we like to say the platinum rule, treat Mm -hmm. others the way that they want to be treated. Right. Like, so, you know, you know, just be, just do good and be the change that 
you want to see in the world. I think Gandhi said that, right? Yes, so like, exactly. you know, just be the change that you want to see in the world. If we sit back and we wait for something to just miraculously happen, then that's just not going to ever, that, that is just not going to happen. Yeah. And we have to be the change that we want to see. Agreed. Agreed. So now Tatiana, I see that you are a graduate of North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. Yes, Aggie Pride. Okay. Yeah, somebody said somebody said the other day and I was like, Aggie. I'm like, oh, maybe that's for the agricultural part. Yes, it is actually. It is. Yes. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. I've been learning a lot about this fine institution over the last couple of days. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so um, if you can just maybe talk a little bit about you know, your experience there. From what I understand, it is an HBCU yes. in North Carolina. And I, I, I think I was told Greensboro. Yes. Okay. In Greensboro, North Carolina. And, um, you know, I know that, I guess, let me back up a little bit before we get into your experience at North Carolina. You, you know, aside from all the things that you're doing are also an author of a book that I believe will be released at the end of this month, at the end of September. Uh, the book is entitled The HBCU Experience, North Carolina Agricultural um, and Technical State University, second edition. Yes. Okay. And so if you could just maybe talk to me about, because um, I believe that the book is based on your experience at um, an HBCU, particularly North Carolina A&T. So if you could just talk to me about your experience at North Carolina um, A&T. Yes, absolutely. So um, to touch on a couple of the points that you mentioned, the HBCU experience, North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, second edition, is a book um, filled with experiences from fellow alumni that, you know, want to share their story and, and share why this illustrious institution is so near and dear to our hearts and, and just kind of give um, a, you know, brief summary, if you will, because you really can't capture all four <laughs> years into a specific chapter, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, a, a snippet into what our experience was why we love our institution so much and how it's kind of shaped our lives. My experience um, in my chapter is really dedicated to finding a sense of belonging. Um, If you were to maybe compare it to anything, I always like to tell people like when I think of A&T, I picture myself like Dorothy on the Wiz or the Wizard of Oz and I'm, <laughs> I'm clicking my heels and, you know, A&T for me is, is my Kansas. When I say that there's no place like home, it is literally that. It's my Kansas. It's my Wakanda. When uh, uh, Black Panther is going into uh, the space where the <laughs> ship kind of hits the mountain, but then it turns into this beautiful scenery. And he says, this never gets old. That is literally, you know, my feeling every time I get back onto campus. It is that that euphoric feeling for me. And it's a huge sense of nostalgia um, for me, it gave me a place to, to literally call home. So at the beginning, when you asked me where I'm from, I always struggle with that question mm-hmm. <laughs> because I literally just do not have a place that I relate to, to call home. I can tell you where my, my dad is from. I can tell you where my mother is from. I can tell you all of the places up and down the East coast that I have lived. And, you know, I have friends literally from the tip of Florida to, Maine (laughs) on the East Coast and California, you know, just stretched all throughout the United States. 
Um, but I don't ever have a place where I say like, oh yeah, I'm from so-and-so because mm-hmm. we didn't stay long enough for me to feel like that. And then anywhere that I am, um, like if I, if I go to high school my, with my high school friends and they start talking about, remember those times we did this, that, and the third and middle school to elementary school. And I just kind of get quiet because no, I don't remember those times. I wasn't <laughs> here. <laughs> I wasn't there. So it just gave me this this belonging. I've always had a wonderful family, but my, the alumni, it's like a whole different feeling and sense of family. So like when we get together, it truly feels like a reunion when one of us wins. So like when Tariq Cohen was drafted to the NFL, we all partied, we Mm -hmm. all celebrated because it felt like, like one of us won. And it felt like a family member, a cousin, a brother was, you know, getting, what he deserved. Right. So if something happens to a fellow Aggie, you know, we all mourn and we all hurt. So, um, it's really that, that spirit of home and belonging for me when I'm at the airport. And this literally happens every time I go to the airport and I, I wear Nelia on purpose when I go to the <laughs> airport, just because I love meeting another Aggie. Right. So it's like, I could be walking to a terminal and someone else could be like, can I get an Aggie pride? Just because they see my <laughs> right? So um, it's just like, it's super, and I'm sure that I'm not the only person that you've talked to from this mm-hmm. group of authors that probably explain this very unexplainable feeling that we have about our alma mater. And I've attended other schools. So I have a master's degree. I did a post-baccalaureate program um, at different universities, none of which gave me the feeling that I have at A&T. Okay. And so I guess with your decision to attend an HBCU, how did you arrive at that decision? Because I know a lot of individuals, I mean, a lot of the people who are, who are part of this platform have already graduated, probably have no uh, interest or desire to go back to school. But we are mothers, we are aunts, we are uncles um, of, of children who are, you know, going to be ready to go to college. And so I am always interested as to how one arrived at the decision to go to an HBCU. Yeah. So I, um, because I moved around so much, it, it depends, right? So wherever I was, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go to, um, you know, this school because I live here. Oh, I'm going to go to UNC Chapel Hill and be a Tar Heel. And, you know, because it just, because I know we cheer for them, um, you know, when they play so-and-so, you know, or or I'm going to go to Virginia Tech or these other schools and these names that we constantly hear from based on where I lived at the time or, um, you know, just based on, on what I heard. But my dad, he went to Fayetteville State University. And it's really funny because we, we always give each other, you know, house divided kind of strife. We're not in the same conference, but, um, you know, we like mm. to give each other a hard time. <laughs> but his, his love for his HBCU runs so deep. My mother, she attended an HBCU. It runs so deep. And it wasn't until my maybe junior year in high school when I was taking like the PSATs and, and starting to really think about my next steps in college that my grandparents started talking to me. And I never, I don't know, I didn't, I never like attended homecoming at A&T. My parents didn't go there. My grandparents did. I have cousins and stuff that went, but I had never experienced this uh, feeling that I was telling you about as a child. I didn't mm-hmm. like grow up in this. Uh, you'll hear us say like Aggie born, Aggie bred. I wasn't Aggie born. I was Aggie bred, <laughs> um, but I'm, you know, but we'll still say the whole, the whole thing. Um, 
And it wasn't until my grandparents started saying like, well, we went to A&T. They didn't actually finish. They, they left um, A&T early and decided to get married and, and start their lives. But hearing about their experience while they were there and just seeing the pride that they had when they talked about it and when they get with their classmates, it's really funny to see, um, you know, I think oh, I was when I was in college, my grandparents came to visit and they only stopped by to say, hey, because they were headed to the, the main host hotel to go party with their classmates. Right. <laughs> so and they're in their like 80s. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's just it's just awesome to kind of see. And I had always my grandfather, he would always give me, um, I think, Ebony magazine with all of the black queen. And then um, my, you know, just my understanding of shows like a different world and kind of seeing like, wow, that's cool. Like, I didn't even know that this was a thing that you could like, I could go to a black college and like, you know, and still do good, still be Mm -hmm. great and have all this love and all this, you know, this sense of family and the sense of environment that I've been dying for my entire life. So it really became down to that. And I, I actually almost went to Howard instead. And um, cause I was so, cause because DC and Maryland was that sense of home for me. That's where I first started school and that's where I first started making friends. So I mm-hmm. always told myself it didn't matter where I was going. I was going to go back to DC and Maryland and find my friends and, you know, just have, you know, go back to the places that, that created that feeling for me. And I didn't have to do that. I was able to go to Greensboro, which was only two hours away from my family at the time and find another family, okay. an extended family. Yeah. All right. That, yeah. That, I, and that's kind of like the sense that I've gotten from um, a lot of the other authors, you know, how they've kind of stumbled upon, um, the HBCU world, it was just kind of like this sense of family and the sense of camaraderie that, you know, is still part of their lives even till today. Yes, yes, it is. And um, those are friends and friendships and relationships that last a lifetime. I have friends there that I still talk to every day or, you know, we even live in the same city now. Um, I have line sisters from the sorority that I joined. I met my husband there. Mm -hmm. So our, our son is definitely Aggie born, Aggie bred. I have one, one school that my cash, uh, my checks will cash and that is A&T and the rest he can figure out. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, it's, it's our, it's our sense of a family and my younger siblings also followed in my footsteps and attended A&T and they feel the same way. So just, it's like this family legacy that we've kind of continued to evolve. Okay. So now with respect to your chapter in the book, I know that, you know, we want to encourage everyone to purchase it, but would you be able to just give us just a little snippet of your chapter? Yeah, absolutely. So I literally start off by kind of explaining this belonging and this sense of feeling that I had been searching for and how my grandparents kind of inspired me to take a look and, you know, consider going to this this school. And once I got there, how I started to just kind of find myself in my, I guess, early adult life. Right. And Mm -hmm. um I, I started to really understand what my passion in life was. And I had people that really took time to mentor me and encourage me and love on me to really like develop 
myself, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And, um, you know, challenged me. I can't express that enough. I think often people assume that when you go to HBCU that you're not challenged. And that is far from the truth. Um, still have nightmares about classes <laughs> and, uh, you know, pulling all-nighters to study and and going to the library or, or, or being with study groups literally for hours on hours. And sometimes we would, you know, have to have dinner and then get breakfast just based on how long we've been together working on this project or this group assignment or studying for this chemistry exam. And, you know, it's, it's just this community, right? So um, my chapter is really based on that. It's based on how I got there and the experiences that I had within my department and um, the experiences that I had joining my sorority and, and finding this sisterhood in addition to this huge family environment mm-hmm. that I had and, and friendships that I've, I've curated since then, meeting my husband and um, establishing kind of the foundation for what I have taken and, and created into my 501c3 nonprofit. Okay. All right. Well, I definitely am looking forward to reading the entire book and to reading everybody's chapter. Um, you know, I didn't go to an HBCU. Um, I don't I don't really know if I have any family members who actually um, did, but I do have a lot of friends, a lot of esteemed colleagues um, who did go to HBCUs and, you know, their experiences, like I've never heard anyone say anything negative about their experience. Um, and they're all, you know, excellent excellent um, individuals, you know, within their respective fields. Uh, But I think a book like this is just so important and so necessary. And I was telling one of the other uh, co-authors that, you know, I wish a book like this existed when I was thinking about college, because I think it would have definitely given me more of an understanding of what HBCUs are, particularly since I'm of, you know, immigrant background and I'm not really, you know, this is not a part of the culture um, that I grew up around. And so a book like this is just so necessary, so important. So I really really thank you guys for coming together to put something like this, especially in a time like now where, you know, uh, race tensions are so high in this country and, and parents and, and students are just thinking, you know, you know, where can we go to receive education where we're wanted, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, I think that your, I think that our reasoning for attending an HBCU probably does has a lot, have a lot to do with influence, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, HBCUs are really prevalent in like the South, yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of my family up north, uh, if they didn't come down south to go to school, they didn't really go to HBC or my, my family on the West Coast, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, that wasn't a thing. So, you know, you absolutely can still thrive at, um, you know, a predominantly white institution. You don't have to go to historically black college and university. I think the benefit from this book and the series that the HBCU experience movement has put together with other universities is that it's a sounding board and it's really kind of creating a space for us to tell our stories and our importance because you don't often hear about these schools yeah. the way that you would others. So that I think that that sense of establishment is very important as well. Yeah, I think that that's so on point because to be honest, I never heard of North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University before. I didn't even know that it was so esteemed. I was talking to some of the other um, uh, co-authors who were speaking about their, you know, engineering backgrounds and the placement Mm. of the school. And I was like, I would have never known that. Um, So I think it is important to have to to really showcase uh, these schools and to really present them as very viable options. Absolutely. Okay. 
Well, I know that the book, like I said, is, is supposed to be released at the end of this month, but where can we find it? Um, I think that it's going to be sold where, where books are sold, but you know, I, I, my go-to book place is Amazon. So I know for a fact (laughs) that you might go to everything is Amazon. So, um, I know that you will be able to make the purchase there. Okay. And, um, is there any contact information you'd like to leave for the people? Like if people are like, wow, this woman's story is so sensational. I want to be able to contact her to ask her some questions, whether it be with the diversity inclusion realm or just about, you know, North Carolina A&T. Um, do you have like an Instagram or a Facebook that people could, um, you know, potentially contact you through? Absolutely. Absolutely. So on Facebook, I am Tatiana Tinsley Dorsey. Um, on Instagram, I am at closer underscore the number to my dream. So all together at closer to my dream and, um, business wise, I can be found at the ladybugs official on Instagram. And then I have a family page as well to see my little Aggie baby Aww. running around because he started <laughs> taking over my own Instagram account. I was like, you know what, guy, you have to have something else and I'm <laughs> post you on this page. And that is um, at Digging the Dorseys. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. I'm definitely going to follow. I love seeing family. I love seeing family groups. (laughs) Yes, please do. And I asked myself, I used to be that person like, well, how did they manage, Mm -hmm. you know, having a baby account or dog account, all these things. And now I'm just like, you know what? I have to like separate my content because if I look at my page, you'll see once you hit follow, like everything from the time that my son was born until like recently mm-hmm. is all my son. And then I'm like, you know, I'm going to have to name the page Dylan Blake after a while because <laughs> it's his, it's, it's turning into his thing. It's, That's it's funny. really not his page. So yes. <laughs> okay. That sounds so cute. I have a cat page for my cat, but uh, it's hard I, to it's hard to stay on top of it. <laughs> it's hard, right? Yeah, like you know, and I was just like, how do people do this? But now I'm just like, I probably am posting more to this family page because that's really all that I post. But mm-hmm. I'm doing my absolute best because I, like I said, I have so many other things that I do besides just being a mom. You know, as much as I love it and as much as I want to share my baby to the world, he can do it on his platform, and I'll do it on mine. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Well, Tatiana, thank you so much for being uh, a guest on this show. I think we definitely learned a lot about who you are, what you do, and, you know, about this book that's coming out that's that's definitely going to be, I'm putting it out there, a bestseller. Um, I definitely see it, you know, inspiring people. And so, you know, just thank you for taking the time to come on and talk about all of this. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. All right, everyone. So thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Frida's World. I will talk to you guys next week. Whose world is this? It's Frida's World. What's it like? What's it like? Classy and ratchet at the same time. You clatch it. Like you love church music, but you f*** with future. That's clatch it. It's Frida's World.